You're listening to the Get Fucking Real Show. Strap in as your host, Lisa Cherney, takes you on a ride full of GFR moments. From powerful messages to exclusive interviews to untold stories of super shitty moments before big successes. And even real-life confessions. Lisa's been mentoring millionaire entrepreneurs for over 20 years, coaching top coaches and tapping her mighty woo-woo side to mentor the best of the best spiritual peeps. It's time to bring on the straight talk from successful, soulful entrepreneurs, inspiring you to live without regrets, to create your legacy, and be unapologetically you. And now, it's time to GFR. Life is too short to be a slave to your own dream Cause I'm working too hard And I want to feel so alive I jump out of bed because I love my life Living on my terms, I know that I will thrive Being myself, clarity will arrive So I'll stand out and be J-U-I-C-Y Hey y'all, I'm Lisa Cherney. I'm the host of the Get Fucking Real show, and I am super excited about today's guest, who many see as the pioneer in the podcasting world. His name is Steve Ulsher, and he inspired me to ask you this question to kick things off today. Do you know the one thing you were created to do? This would be what Steve calls your what. He is a New York Times bestselling author of a book called, What is Your What? Discover the One Amazing Thing You Were Born to Do. And the story that Steve shares so candidly today is the tumultuous journey that he took to finding his what. And as many of our guests really exhibit, is that often our struggle has a purpose, especially if part of what you're meant to do on this planet is being a business owner that is driven by a mission, a purpose to fulfill a certain place in this world, in this lifetime. Steve is known as the world's foremost reinvention expert. He is famous for helping individuals and corporations become exceptionally clear on their what. He also is the founder and editor-in-chief of Podcast Magazine and the original chairman and founder of Liquor.com. And uh, this is a central focus of today's story in the journey that he had with Liquor.com and what he learned from it. And he's also a pioneer in the online world, and that has to do with his Liquor.com business. He also is the host of the number one rated podcasts, Reinvention Radio, which I have been on twice by the time this episode airs, and Beyond Eight Figures. And he is an in-demand media guest. He's appeared on CNN, the Huffington Post. He's also on the cover of Founder Magazine. And just a just a really neat guy. I'm really looking forward to you meeting him. I have uh, been in his orbit. He has been in my orbit probably for let's see, um, probably like seven or eight years. I realized as we were talking, he was specifically mentioned his move from Chicago to San Diego and how pivotal that was in his life. And I think we met right when he moved to San Diego. I was a speaker at his reinvention event. And so he is, he has reinvented himself multiple times and he shares candidly the inspiration for those reinventions and where he is now, what his themes are for the year. I really look forward to you meeting him and enjoying this candid conversation with Steve Ulsher. 
Hello, Steve Ulster, or should I call you the king of the podcasting universe? <laughs> um, that works. I, that I, works. <laughs> definitely, definitely different than what my wife would call me, but yes. <laughs> so I'm super excited to have you on the show. And, you know, as I'm sure many give you credit for inspiring them to launch their own podcast, I for sure have been influenced by you and you're, you know, the, one of the front runners or forefathers of, I think, of this wonderful space. I've been on your show. I'm going to do it again. Um, I was on your show when I was like a newbie. You're a two-timer. I'm a two-timer. And I was the only one that had ever been in, on your stage twice, which you gave me that honor when I was... Uh, two-timer was, on my stage, too. Exactly. Yeah, see? Uh -huh. See? There's something about that. I don't know. Something magical about <laughs> us, Steve. <laughs> true, true, true. I'm super excited to have you here. And uh, I want to thank you up front for being willing to share what you're going to share. And, you know, this is a straight talk in confessions from successful soulful entrepreneurs, which you are of. And you've been around the block and you hey, are hey, hey. the king of reinvention <laughs> is, is one of the books, right? One of the books you wrote is about reinvention or, or a course or something about that, right? <laughs> Yeah. Well, that was one of the stages you spoke. I was the reinvention workshop. So there you That's go. That's right. And uh -huh. then you have reinvention radio. And so I feel, you know, many of our guests like live what they teach, right? They are a product of their mission and you are no exception to that. And uh, we're going to, you know, get into some nuances about that. So is it true you started out as a nightclub DJ? Ah, yes. Back, back in the day. Yeah. I started out as a nightclub DJ, DJed was a dance music DJ being from Chicago. I was a house head, if you will. Um, and so, yeah, DJ in a lot of clubs, made really good money and uh, actually opened up my own nightclub when I was uh, 19, which was uh, a non-alcoholic nightclub, if you're wondering out there. Yes. <laughs> and was that your first foray into entrepreneurship? I mean, I would say it was the, the, the first official foray. I mean, even from the time I was really young, being able to just pick up a rake and move some leaves around to shovel in sidewalks and driveways and all that fun stuff. I mean, certainly I've always had that entrepreneurial bug of trying to rub a couple dimes together and make a porter. But I think that the nightclub was certainly the first real foray into business, having wrote a business plan, raised money for it and, um, and opened in the club. Yeah. So what is, so your mom, you work a lot with your mom as I do, and I got to meet her and, and my, our, our moms met, which is, was like real fun mm -hmm. and our biggest fans, right? <laughs> I always tell people you should travel with your biggest fan. It's, it's very handy. <laughs> so you started working with your mom early on. Um, what's the timing of that to the nightclub thing hit for you first? And then you were given the opportunity to, to go into business with your mom with yeah. the store. Yeah, so the uh, so the nightclub definitely came first. Then, uh, when I was um, the ripe old age of twenty two at that time, then I came to join the family business, which was actually started by my grandfather. My grandfather was still alive at that point. My grandfather had started Foremost Liquor Stores, which is pretty big in Chicago and New York and other markets as well over the years. And so, mom had gone to work for him in seventy seven, and then when I was twenty two. Uh, I stepped in and started working on a very, very, very small piece of that business, uh, which was called Foremost Liquor by Wire, which was basically, if you think about FTD for flowers, it was the same thing for wine and champagne and spirits, gift baskets. We would have local retailers who would deliver those gifts. No matter where you were, uh, you could send something pretty much anywhere. And anyway, that's where we started. 
Yeah, I love that as a beginning because it really showed like, and now I see this in you and this, the you that I've known for like last 10 years, you know, sort of always in search of sort of what's the edge, what's the innovative thing I can do? How can I not, I don't think it's from the from the standpoint of standing out, but it's just like just wanting to not be in the big, you know, in the big pond with everybody. It's like, how can I, you know, be expressed in a different way? So it feels like finding that little piece of the business of your grandfather's business was sort of a way for you to have your own sort of personal expression in the whole thing. Yeah. And, and, and again, it was separate, complementary, but separate to what the core business was. And just to give you know, everybody in understanding of where that business, I mean, just, we had an 800 number back in the day, right? A Watts line, as we used to call it. Yes. Um, I would for AT&T. So I know all of like the, the you know, all line. the lingo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and there, there were, there were days that would go by and the phone wouldn't ring. So it's not like this was a, a big business for us. I mean, literally you'd get like two, maybe three orders uh, a week. So I just, I really liked the the concept and I thought that it, held a lot of potential because there was nobody really doing that. And so, yeah, it was my way of being in the family business without really being in it, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So then shortly or not so shortly enters in this liquor.com journey. And this was one of the pieces of your story that I really want to help tell because it spans a long period of time, right? A 10 year period of time uh, or 10 years plus. And it really like shows, again, that reinvention-ness of you and also in search of like what your thing was. It's like you had this entrepreneur spirit, you know, like this, you know, wanting to make your own way. And it was like how it was how your life unfolded was like sort of this backdrop of this. It's that's how I read it It was like liquor.com was like this sort of ongoing backdrop to your life that seemed to kind of weave in and out at pivotal times. Mm Yeah. So one of the first things that I did when I came on board with the family business is launch a catalog. And so that catalog featured a lot of the products that we were offering. A natural next step in the early 90s, for me anyway, was to pursue what was going on in the world of, of technology in terms of the world of the internet and so on. And so if you remember way back in those days when you had CompuServe and America Online and Prodigy and so on, you know, you go to the grocery store, you'd pick up the CD-ROM, you'd load that CD-ROM yes. and you'd be online in that respective world, if you will, of CompuServe or AOL, et cetera. And so I thought that there was going to be a pretty big move towards this whole connectivity and the internet and whatnot, but the internet really wasn't a thing. So we kind of hung our hat there, if you will, on... Uh, on CompuServe's Electronic Mall, and that was the horse we chose to ride. Uh, And it did really well for us for a couple of years, a little bit longer, but then the internet really started to take over around 95. And so 95, we launched one of the first fully functional e-commerce sites uh, where you could go there and you could actually put something into a basket and you could buy it, you know, a cart, right? And that wasn't as easy as it is today by any stretch. I mean, you had to build a lot of that. So as we, began, as we really began pursuing what was available to us in the world of this whole online marketplace, by 98, we were doing pretty good. So we started looking at different domains because when we first launched online in 95, we just had liquorbywire.com and lbw.com. And I started looking around and, and found liquor.com. And it wasn't being used. There was somebody who owned it. Uh, and we ended up tracking that guy down and coming to terms to buy both liquor.com and bourbon.com 
for seventy five hundred dollars back in nineteen ninety eight. And you know, at the time, it was a it was a stretch. We were a small business. You know, this is twenty odd plus years ago, right? So seventy five hundred dollars back then. You know, I don't know whatever it is, fifteen grand or you know whatever those numbers equate to now. It was not a ton of money, but as a small business, it was still one of those decisions that was tough to make. Right? It was like, does it make sense for us to put out this additional cash? Are we ever going to see anything back from that? But we had we were doing over a million in revenue at that point, and we ended up saying yes, got the domain, uh, and uh, and started doing business from '98 on uh, as Liquor.com, eventually reaching several million dollars in sales before we filed the S1 to go public. And what was it like in the family dynamic? You know, family businesses can be interesting to navigate. Yeah. Did you have enough autonomy in this sort of online that you didn't need to like get enroll your mom or I'm not sure if you're like, what, what was that like? <laughs> yeah, so it was, so it was interesting from 91 until 94, I had enough autonomy to really just be able to, to do what I wanted to do while still understanding that. I had to learn. I mean, I didn't know much about that world. So I still needed guidance. I still needed to work with mom and my grandfather and so on. And then in 94, we actually decided to divest ourselves of all of the foremost business just so we could focus on liquor by wire at that time. And that was a decision that mom and I made together uh, with my grandfather. And ultimately, I think when we sold foremost off that yeah, that that kind of killed him, so to speak, because mm. he died just uh, just a few months later. Wow! So um, it was it was a tough period of time, and left a lot of money on the table during that period. Not the least of which was we had a huge building in Chicago, where this headquarters was, and we didn't really know what to do with that building, and ended up just dropping it for a song. Anyway, it was it was a tough period of time, but from '94 on, Mom and I were working solely on that business. And I was the, the primary driver of that business for sure. But there was a lot of struggles, you know, a lot of issues of just struggling with control and, you know, the control issues and so on and who would make the decisions. And as much as we tried to do those things together, it's tough for two people to, to steer the same ship. Yeah. What did you wind up drawing on in terms of tools or advice or did you have a coach or how did you and mom navigate that? Yeah, we didn't, you know, <laughs> I mean, we really, we didn't. You duked it out. <laughs> yeah, so to speak. I mean, it really became that power struggle. And, and I think for her, she knew that if she didn't allow me to do what I needed to do, then she would probably lose me. And I think she was more scared of, of losing being able to work with me than the confidence in herself being able to run that business on her own. Because as she readily admits, you know, she, she didn't know anything about business when she went into business. She, her, her education was to be a teacher. And then when her and dad got divorced in 77 and she found herself as a single parent with three kids and two of them were troubled and challenging, I was not one of those three, uh, although I was challenging in my own ways, I think she felt kind of panicked and just needed to, to go get this job working for her dad. And I don't think she ever, and to this day, she admits, I don't think she's ever really had any love for it. Yeah, which is, well, first of all, you know, after meeting her, she's She's a force to be reckoned with. She's such a neat lady. And you could see, you know, it's, I think it's an interesting thing that like we get to this place where we're adults and we have our own kids and then we can look back on what our, you know, the sacrifices our parents made or the journey that they were on and 
can you see how like that early experience with her dad and getting that job has sort of like, cause now she's, she's a coach and she does, you know, uh, training and consulting and it sounds like it really put her on a different path. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely put her on a path, but at the same token, that was sort of a, a forced path because when liquor.com was really flourishing and back in the late nineties, when ideas on a napkin were getting millions of dollars in funding, you know, it was a really interesting period of time. And so we pursued that whole venture capital world, if you will, of let's bring in some money. We've, you know, all of our quote unquote heavy lifting is done. We just need money to, to market this thing and let's go out and raise some capital you know, maybe we'll take this thing public. When we were doing millions of dollars in revenue, we had liquor.com as a category killer domain and so on. So we went down that path and we literally had the S1 and we were ready to go public in March of 2000. That S1 was filed. And then March of 2000, of course, is when that whole bubble burst. I mean, that's when the NASDAQ was at like 5,500 and it's only in the last couple of years that it's gotten back to 5,500 now well beyond that. But that was a, a tough period of time for sure because we had brought in outside management to run the company. We had been told by Wall Street that they needed to see you know, all these lettered saviors, the seasoned CEOs and CTOs and you know, CFOs and WTFs, you know, and all these people that are you know, ridiculous. <laughs> and so we signed away our management rights because that's what we were told we needed to do in order to attract that talent and take the company public. And then when everything imploded and we couldn't go public and our hands were tied and it just became really clear very quickly that the people that we brought in to take us to this promised land really had no clue what they were doing. And so I walked away from everything in August of 2000, so roughly nine years after coming in there, leaving with absolutely nothing to show for it, mom stayed on through that holiday season and then everything closed shop in spring of that next year. And so I started doing other things and didn't really have the desire to start anything else up at that point with mom as a, as a partner. Um, so she had to do something and, mm -hmm. and it just felt like that was the, the next natural step, I think, for her. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. And it, you know, it's, it's a, we're talking about her path. We're talking about your path and I can't imagine what that must've been like to, you know, as a kid stepping, you know, 22 stepping into the business, really building up something innovative, something in the forefront of the industry. And then, you know, really going for it, going for the IPO. And then, you know, I could just see, I just see the vision of you sort of walking away from rubble, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, no, it was tough. I mean, I remember we actually owned uh, a building where we housed uh, the company and uh, not terribly far from where we lived. And so I was able to walk to work every day. And so um, I, I remember very clearly the day that I quit, I was walking home and just thinking to myself, you know, how am I going to explain this to my wife? I mean, she at the time was a Chicago public school teacher. So she was doing okay. But you know, teachers get paid what they get paid. And um, she had a son when she was very young. So now we have a, a young man at home who's I think at that point, you know, maybe, um, I guess he would be 15, something like that, somewhere right around there. And so I knew that I just couldn't really rest on on my laurels. So I walked home, came through the gate and walked up the steps. We lived in an A-frame three flat. Uh, and so we were on the second floor of that and uh, sat on the steps for a few minutes and kind of collected myself and, and went inside and told Lena what, uh, what had transpired. 
but I didn't really uh, have any plans of just sitting there and trying to figure out, you know, how I could throw a pity party for myself. I just knew I had to start making money pretty quickly. So I, I never really had time to, to mourn it. And it was tough, but I didn't really have time to mourn. Do you feel like that came back to bite you in the butt at some point, not having time to mourn that? Um, maybe, because I think that I never fully let go. You know, and, and so in 2000, the next big thing to take place was real estate. You know, real estate was all the rage at that point. Right? Everybody and their mother was buying real estate. They were buying contracts on condos that were yet to be built. And then they were flipping out of those contracts even before the unit was done and making 50 grand, 100 grand, whatever it might be. You know, people were buying single family homes and throwing a coat of paint on it and, and turning it and, you know, making 100 grand or whatever. And so when I was searching for what to do next, again, I didn't have a lot of time to try to figure that out. But really, the key for me came in in two ways. Number one, uh, I was in a a convenience store and I overheard a a couple of the worker who was behind the cashier, um, who was of Indian descent, and then his friend who I believe had a taxi because there was a taxi out front and Mm -hmm. he was inside and they were talking, who I believe was also of Indian descent the cab driver was actually telling the cashier how he had bought this condo and had flipped it and made $50,000 in a matter of about three months. And so I've always been of the mindset of, you know, with very rare exception, if you can do something, I can do it too. No matter what it is, I may have to have a learning curve and try to figure out this, that, or the other. But if if you can do it, I can do it. I mean, I can't run a four second, 40 yard dash, right? There's certain physical limitations. But in business, I feel like if there's a model out there, then I can replicate that and have similar success. So you had that, you just had that, have you, did you always have that belief in yourself? If you could do it, I can do it. Yeah. You know, and that's not always worked to my benefit. That's for sure. Because reality is everything, no matter what it is, takes skill. It takes knowledge. It takes expertise. It's not just as simple as replicating and modeling what you see. That's why you see so many people today going broke, just trying to replicate what you know others in, in the coaching or authoring or speakering or podcasting world are doing. So it's just not that simple. But you know, the second thing that really turned me on to the idea of going into real estate was even though I knew we had to get busy and I knew I had to start making some real money doing something, we were also in a position where fortunately I didn't have to come out of pocket every month to live where we lived because we owned this multi-unit building and had a four-car garage in the back and we rented out all of these units, except for ours, and we were making money every month on that building. So you were already sort of in real estate. So I was sort of in real estate, exactly. (laughs) Just said, yeah, there's a pretty good opportunity here. Uh, And and so I started moving in that direction uh, on, on my own. And we got into this story because I'm just telling you really the, the transition into how I got back to liquor.com, which is after having done about $34, $40 million in real estate development, to that point, we moved into a, a really big three flat that I converted into a single family home. It's about 5,500 square feet, half a block from the lake in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago. So a really nice neighborhood, you know, multi-million dollar home. Big accomplishment, like big milestone to have accomplished. Big milestone, you know, just how do you do that, right? I mean, that sort of thing. It was just a a massive house. 
and just needed to check that box off of the ego list, I think. Yeah, um, I was just thinking I had the same, I'm in that, I'm in that house um, that like we're ready to downsize. It's sort of like, yeah, check that ego box. I think that's yeah. a, a significant thing to notice, you know? Yeah, um, yeah for sure. And, and so we're in this location. Part of what I used to do is walk my dog along the lake you know, almost every day. And sometimes I would pick up the Wall Street Journal from the driveway and start reading it and just, you know, walk the dog and read the paper. And I remember the, uh, the headline of this particular edition that I was reading said something to the extent of domain name prices approaching pre-bubble pricing, right? I mean, I don't know, something like that. And this is around 2005, somewhere in there. And so it had been just over you know, five years since I literally walked away from everything, including the, the domain. And so I had never actually signed away my rights to the domain, but I did leave the company. So out of sight, out of mind. And I'm sitting there thinking, as I'm reading this article, I wonder whatever actually did happen to that liquor.com domain. So I started doing some research and I ended up tracking it down to a guy in the country of Panama. And we started having some conversations about the domain. And he never said really how he got the domain, <laughs> never really threatened litigation, but basically just kind of had said, you know, look, this, this was a domain that, you know, should still be rightfully mine, considering that I never signed my rights away to it. And, and I didn't hear back from him for months. And then Christmas Eve 2006, he sends me an email and he says, paraphrasing, you know, I'm sorry, I... I have a lot of problems. I shouldn't have this domain. I want to give it back to you. Wow. And so um, I was like, mm, Christmas miracle. <laughs> Christmas miracle. So I was like, uh, okay. So he's like, let me transfer it into your account. I'll give it back to you. You know, no harm, no foul. I don't want any trouble, this, that, and the other. And so um, I had never done a domain transfer like that before. He said, go here, open up an account. I was like, mm, sounds a little <laughs> But, Sounds like uh, sending money to your uh, grandfather to get him out of jail overseas. <laughs> so um, I was like, okay, what's the worst that can happen? He'll know my name. He'll know my address, you know, whatever. And so I did that. So I set up the account. I gave him the password to the domain so we could transfer, you know, the password to the account so we could transfer the domain in. And sends me another email the next day and says, okay, it's done. I went in, looked at the account, and sure enough, the domain was there. So um, I changed the password in a, in a heartbeat. And, uh, and that was around 2006 when I actually reclaimed the domain. Yeah, I could see it's so tempting for that redemption, right? I mean, you walked away after nine years with nothing and then it like seems like it fell back in your lap. Mm -hmm. It really did. And what ended up happening next was pretty, pretty interesting because it really shows in hindsight that I just, I didn't ever really have any love for the business. And I've never been a, a big, big drinker. Like I'm not one of those guys that will spend a half hour making a drink. You know, if I have a beer once or twice a week, that's a lot. So what I ended up doing though, is I ended up getting the domain back and then I, I just put it up for sale. I mean, I immediately put it up for sale. We ended up with a number of offers. Um, the highest offer was four and a quarter million wow. just for the domain. And so needless to say, I accepted and um, the guy made the first few payments and then bailed on the rest. So, oh. so I kept the domain and I kept the money. Oh, the story is just like. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. 
And, and, and uh, are you at the, like, now where is your, when did you write what is your what? I mean, when does yeah. like that, at some point you're realizing like that it isn't a passion project, that it is sort of like a redemption, you know, journey. Um, yeah. You know. so, yeah. so when does that part of your, your path come in? Yeah, so um, needless to say, throughout all of this, I had been chasing commodity-driven opportunities, as I call them, right? I mean, these are not things that I was truly fired up about, passionate about. It was just, I saw an opportunity to make some money, so I did it. You know, like right now, I'm, I'm, I have one of those commodity-driven opportunity moments going on. I'll announce it here first. Oh, um, yeah? Oh, cool. So I'm thinking to myself, because I've got one of these really nice cameras on the side, and then I've got my screen. And then I've got my laptop, which has the little camera, you know, at the top of that thing. I'm thinking to myself, why is there no monitor that has a camera directly built into the middle of that thing? So you can just actually look at. Look, yes, at thank person, you. Right? <laughs> you know, like it should be right at eye level with wherever totally. that screen is. So anyway, I'm going to start developing that. That'll be next. So that would be another commodity driven opportunity. But yes, it's always been that question of what am I truly passionate about, you know, or as I say, what really puts fire in my soul. And so did all that real estate development. Once I got the domain back, I put together a team out of San Francisco to really build that company and take us to the promised land, you know? And so the, the book came out in, um, in late uh, 2012. So what is your what came out in late 2012, which was actually a reboot of the book that I'd written, Journey to You, a step-by-step -step guide to becoming who you're born to be in 2009. So 2009 is really when I made that shift of saying, okay, real estate, yeah, kind of done with you, especially with all the troubles that have been going on. I don't want to get in all the real estate bullshit that I had to deal with once that bubble burst. Uh, but 2009 was definitely a tipping point where I was like, I, I got to do something more with my life that provides more meaning and fulfillment and a sense of contribution so that I, I don't just have this existence that's good for me and those closest to me, but really no one else. And so at some point you got to a place of seeing that you knew something about this, like that you were able to see, oh, this journey had a purpose because I know a little bit about, you know, mm -hmm. finding your thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's like a switch that can get flipped for people as like, it's now not about the pursuing, but it's about now seeing the expertise that I have because of the journey. So like yeah. what brought that on? Did you like go to a Tony Robbins seminar and he said, mm -hmm. you know, make something of yourself and be like, what, what was the turning point for you that, that. Yeah. For me, it was more uh, aligned with the death of my stepfather. And so that was my mom's husband who raised me pretty much since I was 10. And now I'm drawing a blank on the year, but I think it was around 2010 or so, 29, 20 of 10, something like that, right in there anyway, where he unfortunately had gotten very ill and was in his final days of life. And so he was in hospice care at their home. And I went there to be with him during those final days. Uh, and it was either the day before he died or the second day before, whatever, just sometime before, obviously, he passed. Um, I was sitting there with him bedside holding his hand and I had a vision of my funeral, not, not of his funeral, but actually of mine. And I could hear the words being spoken graveside, which were basically, here lies Steve Olsher, he dedicated his life to chasing the almighty dollar. Uh, and that's all that was said. And so I was in that casket being lowered into the earth, little peaks of light, and I could hear it. 
and I could see, you know, just a, a few people kind of smattered around there. And so my stepfather, Al, he was unable to communicate at that point. So he wasn't really able to talk, but I think that he was connecting with me through that point of touch as I was holding his hand. And I think he was just basically saying, look, you know, this, this is your inevitable fate unless you change course. And is that how you want to be remembered? And so that to me was the, the real wake up call, so to speak. And, and I'll say this, I'm not going to be one of those hypocritical people that will say, oh yeah, it's been the world's best journey. And I'm so glad that I started <laughs> doing, you know, this in terms of writing books and speaking and this, that, and the other, because reality is, as I look back on the last 10 years, since I made that shift during, you know, doing more quote unquote, meaningful work, I've also really forgone giving myself the opportunity to create residual income so that I don't have to keep doing this work. You know, because when I was doing a lot of the real estate development, it was creating a lot of that residual income. I sold off a lot of that stuff so that I could do the work that I needed to do. And so, you know, it's a fine line between doing work that is good and helpful and fulfilling for yourself and for others and taking care of yourself so that you don't have to continually be in that grind. So do you feel like you're moving to a phase where you have a balance of the two? Uh, I will put it to you this way. I'm not a big believer in goals. I'm a big believer in themes. And so my, I have two themes for the decade, uh, the decade of the 20s, that is. <laughs> so this decade, um, Crazy, my, right? <laughs> right, so my, my two themes are residual income and automation. And so doing whatever I can do to continue to share my message with the masses, however I can, but leveraging the power of automation to do that while creating assets that drive residual income for me so that in this decade of my 50s, because I just turned 50, uh, by the time I turn 60, I, I don't want to have to keep at this grind so that I can slow down and do whatever it is that I want to do. Not that I'll, st not that I'll stop working, um, but I, I don't want to keep up this pace forever. Yeah. 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 Thank you for that. I uh, appreciate you sharing with us about Al's death and the impact that that had on you. Is there another turning point that you want to share that illuminates sort of like where you are now and, you know, got you here? Yeah, you know, I'll, um, I'll point to what recently transpired as far as liquor.com is concerned and just closing the loop on that story. So having sold the domain and then got the domain back when the payments stopped, I then went in search of a team to, to really build that company because the, the whole world of dot-com has always been kind of a Silicon Valley phenomenon, so to speak. And I was in Chicago at the time and really didn't feel like, you know, there was an opportunity for us to build a meaningful company there. And I didn't really want to do it in hindsight. So <laughs> that's really that, the theme through the whole thing is you really yeah, right. didn't want to do it. <laughs> So I found that team and, um, and for years they started building it. We actually ended up just selling it to uh, Barry Diller's company, IAC. In full disclosure, I will just simply say that um, I can't give you the exact number, but I will say that once again, I didn't see dollar one on it. So nothing, nothing actually trickled down to the common stockholders, which is where I sat as a founder. But you know, during that process, the real turning point took place for me in November of 2013. So after my book, What Is Your What, had hit the New York Times list earlier that year and after I had been doing this work 
around just helping people reinvent their lives. You know, again, as you said earlier, you do the work that you need, right? And in the author land, you write the book that you most need. And so being on that path and trying to figure it out and four years into the grind of trying to develop this personal brand, I just, I really felt spent and just felt tired, you know, with everything that had gone on with the, and again, we didn't have a chance to go into it and don't really need to go into it. But the second bubble that burst there was that whole real estate bubble. And I lost several properties, got sued. I mean, like just, you know, a lot of stuff. And so, um, so yeah, November, 2013, it was, um, it was a really, really low point, definitely a turning point where I was ready to just throw in the towel, you know, just had enough. And I'm not strong enough to take my own life. You know, a lot of people say that people who commit suicide are cowards and, you know, taking the easy way out and just, you know, giving up and, and just basically just saying, you know, I, I can't take it anymore. I'm not strong enough to get through it. So I'm going to be a coward and end my life. Now, I actually think it's just the opposite. I think that people who commit suicide are unbelievably strong from the standpoint of how strong do you have to be to basically say, fuck you to God. You know, like, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do here. I don't care what your plan is for me. I'm, I'm, I'm making my own plan. And so I never had that strength enough strength to take my own life, but maybe I could drive down the road and just not turn the wheel, you know, on one of those sharp bends or something like that and just see what would happen kind of thing. But, you know, fortunately I, I never did that, but I did end up going into a really deep, deep, deep depression. Um, and as I went through the psychological care and got what I needed to, try to get myself out of there through the little white pills and the love of the family and the whole nine. It turned out actually I'm, I'm genetically predisposed to having really low neurotransmitter levels, like the serotonins and the oxytocins and all of these things. And probably it can be attributed to my heritage. You know, I'm of Jewish descent and, and Jews are, are warm weather people. And so living in Chicago at that point for my entire life and knowing that I really thrive in the sunshine, I thrive in the warmth. It was a combination of things not going great with the career, having to have to deal with all the liquor.com stuff because now I had to sign everything over to the team and now I had no control there once again, you know, trying to build this personal brand and just struggling to, to be able to do that and why I was doing it, I really didn't know. And, and the so, what's your what is, you know, it's, it's it, still the it's question. Very, and it's very confrontational if you're not feeling it, right? If you're teaching other people to find their thing, their what, and you're not feeling your what, like that's... Yeah, that's, it's out of alignment for sure. soul crushing. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, that lack of integrity or being out of alignment, you know, is, is really, it, it's, it's hard. How, you know, who are you? You talk about imposter syndrome. I mean, that's a perfect example of, of someone living there, you know, that, that is the imposter syndrome personified. So yeah, it was, it was tough. And, you know, one of the things that was recommended was to move to a warmer climate, a sunnier, sunnier climate. And that's how we ended up in, uh, in San Diego. But it took years for me to get back to uh, a semblance of self and feeling some degree of strength. And I mean, it, you know, again, we could dig deeper, but that, I think that was probably if, if we're going to have to 
try to identify the two core turning points. I mean, the death of Al and then hitting rock bottom would, would certainly be those. Yeah. Can you, I mean, Lena, just, I, I've always appreciated anyone that could hold space for the force that is of you, my friend, and mm-hmm. hearing just more of this story about what led to the move and just so much strength, that strength that she must have had to, you know, I mean, I know what it's like to have, you know, a spouse that is struggling, you know, I've, you know, we've married 25 years, there's always one of you <laughs> at one point, you know, that goes through something like that. And, you know, we interviewed Jake uh, Gabrani, who I know, you know, um, a prepared fathers who talks about how he didn't see the signs of his wife's you know, yeah. addiction and then eventual suicide. So I'm just reflecting on that and thinking about Lena and, uh, you know, did you lean on her, you know, or did she like, did she have to really like come in and assert her help onto you or h- how did that go? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there was a period of time where I was, I was ready to just, you know, leave the family to leave, you know, just done right with, with everything. Yeah. Um, and yeah, she, she really, really reeled me back in and just said, you know, look, we gotta, we gotta figure out how to, to make this work and do what we need to do here. But I'm not just going to let you run away from this and we're going to do what we need to do. So yeah, definitely. And, and you know, and even the, the move to, to San Diego was a huge sacrifice, you know, for her. Is leaving friends and, you know, mostly, you know, family, you know, people she's known her whole life, right? And friends she's had for decades. It's just super hard. So, I mean, that, that, was, um, that was a huge sacrifice for sure, but that's what she was willing to do to, to keep the family together. So, yeah, big, big part of the recovery certainly is because she was willing to, to say, hey, you know, let, let's get you what you need here. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, it comes down to asking for help from the people that are closest to you. And I think in many ways, that is a turning point for somebody who is contemplating their exit as one of our other episodes is so aptly um, named um, mm-hmm. with, with Tristan is being willing to open your mouth to the people that are, you know, closest to you. Yeah. And, and I mean, I will say that that's for, for most people, that's really, really hard to do. So yes. So I, th- I think there there has to be uh, a knowing of of self, and 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 as I've taken time to step back from where I was at that point, and, and now knowing where I am for the last year or so, I've become really clear on the four things that everybody needs to have in their life in order to really thrive. But we'll continue the conversation. Maybe we'll circle back on that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. And thank you again for for this. So I would love to take our story kind of like jump to the end a little bit and then look back in retrospect. So it's like, so now, um, you know, and, and I've had the pleasure and the the fun of being connected with you for a while now. So I've, I've gotten to see and gotten to play with you in the various ways that you have reinvented yourself, including your reinvention workshop. Mm -hmm. Um, and now you are really holding a beautiful space in the world of podcasting. So, it feels like you've landed in a place that is congruent, you know, that is your what, you know, something that uh, is going to set you up for those themes of residual income and automation. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the biggest lessons you learned that like through rock bottom and through the transition to San Diego, what is it that you feel like that you've learned about yourself that you've now applied to sort of this, the latest chapter that is of your, your business and your life? Mm-hmm. It's, 
more, I think, a, a matter uh, at this point of just really combining where my gifts converge and trying to stay in that zone of convergence as often as possible. And we've been talking about what is your what for quite some time now. And when, let me just let folks clear, you know, let me, let me clear some things up here in terms of what that really is. So the, so the what is your what framework? Which and we're going to give uh, people a link in the show notes so that they can grab a free copy of the book, which I think awesome. is super generous. Yeah, yeah, awesome for that. And so, so the what is what the what is your what framework was really created out of necessity, having tried the Myers Briggs and the what colors your parachutes and you know all those strength finders, you know things that really left me with more questions than answers. <laughs> um, what I felt was missing here was something that you could really hit the ground running with, right? In terms of okay, it's great to know that. If you walk into a room and there's four conversations going on, you know, there's a conversation about politics, there's a conversation about business, there's a conversation about religion, there's a conversation about sports, you know, which corner of the room are you going to gravitate towards? I mean, that's, that's all well and good, but I get in that room and all I'm thinking about is like, where's the fucking door, you know, like, get me, get me out of here, right? So it's like- Mine is, where's the food? Right, well, there's that. So, you know, that's like, okay, great, you know this, and then you got the ENTFs and the- did like WT like I I don't, I don't even know what all those all the letters are. <laughs> like who cares right so so the what is your what framework is really comprised of three core components one is your core gift right? and just really having clarity around how you're naturally wired to excel right so an example of a gift could be communicating or protecting or enrolling or healing or something of that nature so really just having clarity around what your core gift is. And then having clarity around your primary vehicle. So what is the primary vehicle that you will use to then share that gift? And the third piece of the what is your what framework is, uh, are the people. So who are the people that you're most compelled to serve? And so it's the combination of the gifts, the vehicle, and the people that make up the what is your what framework. And ultimately, it's like a tripod. You know, you need all three legs of that stool for it to stand. You can know what your core gift is and your primary vehicle is, but if you don't know who the people are that you're most compelled to serve, that doesn't really work. You can know who your people are in your vehicle, but if you don't know your gift, I mean, et cetera, just run it six ways from Sunday. Um, and you'll find that you really do need all three pieces. And so for me, it's been an evolutionary process. But as I look back, what I'm very clear on now is that my core gift of communicating is pretty consistent over the entire course of, of my career. But what folks also have to understand here is that your vehicle and your people are more organic. In other words, those can change over time, depending on your life experiences. Something has come, you know, as Brendan Burchard says, you know, most things happen because either something new comes into our lives or something new comes out of us. Right. So depending on those experiences that you have, you can then potentially shift the vehicle that you use to share your gift and the people who you're most compelled to serve can change as well. But, you know, like for podcast magazine, which is what we're launching now. Uh, and by the time this airs, it will probably already have been released. So it really does combine so much of what I enjoy. And again, it's the nuances of your gift that make all the difference. So for me, communicating is my core gift with entertaining being a close second. And so as a nightclub DJ and as a DJ, you know, uh, as a club owner, and then you've been to the New Media Summit. So you've seen the 
the dancing elements and the things that we bring into that, right? And, and being yeah. on stage. And, and so Podcast Magazine really combines so much of the nuances of my core gift that I love in terms of being able to tell the story, being able to sit down with influential people, being able to insert myself into that conversation of influence. So when people think of podcasting, I want to be in that conversation. How do I force myself into that conversation? That's what I want you know, everyone to think about is no matter what your niche is, how do you force yourself into the conversation so that when they talk about subject A, your name comes up, right? And like when only- people think of fuck, they think of me. <laughs> Um, they send me all the memes and all, wait, here we got some things that people send me. Look at this. Oh, nice. Have a great day. (laughs) The coffee cup where you lift it and it has the finger underneath. This is the things, right? (laughs) That's not what you meant. (laughs) Um, Now that you put it in that context, I will think of you. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Um, So, you know, the, the point being, as I look now at podcast magazine, and how it really combines so much of what I've just, you know, you, you think about the journey, right? And all the different pieces of that journey that have led me to this point, all the skills that I've assembled that have led me to this point. It's, it really is as much as I think I'll be able to do in so far as fulfilling my what as I possibly can. Beautiful, beautiful. So as our final thing here, um, it comes to me to ask you what advice you would give that 22-year-old that entered the family business and got turned on by the online world and liquor.com. What advice would you give that young man? Yeah, it would be uh, patience, you know, because I've always been really early to the space, so much so to, to my detriment, whether it's been through launching on CompuServe's Electronic Mall in 93 before the internet really took form, signing away my management rights to the company without trusting that I had the ability to actually run it, going into real estate and buying in neighborhoods where the path of progress was headed and seeing it before others, but not having the ability to really reap those benefits because I had to bail on those projects when everything turned getting back the liquor.com domain and instead of just keeping it and leasing it out to someone or making a smarter decision around that feeling like I just needed to give it to someone else. Right. And so I think patience is, is really the, the primary driver. Of what I would, what I would tell that 22 year old that the ability is there, that the vision is there. And sometimes the rest of the world just has to catch up to where you are and not bail on it sooner than, uh, the, than the rewards would allow. As, I love that. And I feel like I also want to tell him that he, to believe in him, to believe for him to believe in himself more than he can see at that. Like, like the patient comes with trusting yourself, you know? And I feel like if he trusted himself more than he would have been able to kind of throttle back in the, those key times. Do you agree? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a great way to, to look at it for sure. I mean, it is that trust of just, uh, again, knowing that it can be done. It may not be perfect, but it can be done well without having to let go of the reins and bring in you know, others to help in that regard. Sure. It may not be able to be done perfect, but it, it could be done well. Yeah. I yep. love that. Awesome. 
Thank you, Steve Ulsher. Thank you for taking us on this journey. I feel like we've been at liquor.com story time with uh, Steve yeah, Ulsher. Right. Thank you for, you know, as many of our guests, I just, I feel like such gratitude for you. Thank you for walking it out, your journey. Thank you for, in 2013, choosing the path to stay here and be here. And I know that the world is a better place. Mm. Having you in it, for sure, uh, you've had a huge impact on my life. And I know that this this episode is going to have a big impact as well. So thank you. Thanks for having me. So Steve has generously provided our listeners with a free copy of his book, What Is Your What? Discover the One Amazing Thing You Were Born to Do. The link is in the show notes to grab a copy of that book. And he wanted me to make sure that you knew that his favorite commandment was number 11, which is embrace you are not the same person you were when you made those mistakes and they will not repeat. Of course, the confession question is what past mistakes are causing me self-doubt now? And he said that this one really spoke to him, of course, with the journey that he had been on and every step of the way really questioning his next best move. And I love the advice that he gives his younger self in the end around patience. And, you know, then I added to it, you know, trusting, trusting yourself. And I think commandment number 11 really speaks to that. If you have not downloaded your free copy of the GFR commandments, um, you may want to grab it so that you have illuminations of your own around these commandments and how they could serve you now and how they may have served your former self, your younger self. Go to gfr.life forward slash 12 C super easy. Just put your name and your email in there and you'll be immediately able to download it. Lots of people print it out or they use it as their like screensaver. And the idea is not to do all 12 y'all. So don't worry about that. Just read the confession questions. And one of them is going to hit you in the gut. And that is the one that's going to give you the biggest breakthrough right now. And the last thing I wanted to share with you is the segment that we recorded for our GFR squad members. <laughs> and I love the name of it. It's called The Four Pillars to a Fucking Great Life. <laughs> and actually, these four things um, that Steve mentioned didn't get a chance to go into in the show are things that looking back on his life and where he hit bottom and was contemplating suicide and looking back, he now sees that there were four things that he must have in his life. And that must be really monitored because any one of them, not having any one of them really creates a downward spiral. So we named it the four pillars of a fucking great life. And that is the segment that we have for our GFR squad. If you are not a member of our GFR squad, it's only 20 bucks a month and you get all the bonus segments from all of the podcast guests, as well as a monthly call with me where we pick one of the confession questions and that's our theme. And we call it our confession call. It's a really amazing group of people. And for only 20 bucks a month, you can be plugged in with me and them and we're having a fucking great time there. So go to gfr.life forward slash squad to check that out. All right, y'all. Until next time, I look forward to talking with you and having you meet somebody new and interesting and hearing their, <laughs> their tumultuous story to birth their mission so that you know that you are not alone.